name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us ready to pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses. It's not temptation, it's people want grace, be said, Lord. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and glory, forever and ever, amen. I going to laugh at trespasses again, and I <laughs> told it in. Okay. <clears throat> This sucks that we're apparently not going to be in person for another at least month, um, unless there's a way of doing it socially distanced under the acad uh, educational programs. We'll see. Because um, I wanted to get you guys to also read out loud, um, not just me to read all the time, but it is what it is. So um, before we get into it, um, like we'll catch up a little bit on where we on where we were, just as a backdrop before we get into John three. Um, so we talked about this whole concept in the Gospel of Saint John. It's also in his epistles about light and dark, real versus fake, becoming versus is, right? And and it's philosophical, but it's also ridiculously profound. Like once it enters um, a person where you're going to see this constant contrast between what's real and what's material or, 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 or fake. I'm using the word fake. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid using the word fake because it's almost like contrasting good and bad. And that's not what the Gospel of John is about. He's not saying that the body is bad. Otherwise, he'd be a Gnostic. Um, but he's, con he's contrasting temporal material things that come to an end versus things that are real and eternal and that come from above right and he set up the backdrop in the in the prologue not just about who christ is but also about this big problem that we're going to see that truth has entered into the world and the world rejects truth right um and we're going to see that coming over and over and then we're also going to, we've seen already the language has started with chapter two, where St. John, the Gospel of St. John talks about signs. And he doesn't use the word miracles. He uses the word sign. Um, and we might see a little bit of why that is in, 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 in this chapter. So in chapter one, we got the background of who this person is, who Christ is, right? We got introduced to St. John the Baptist. Um, <clears throat> and in chapter two, we went to a wedding, Okay. All of the stories in the Gospel of John until we get to the garden seem to focus around the temple. Everything is stemming from the institution. Um, and I'll say it from now, the Gospel of John is very anti-institutional. Um, it's not saying there should be no institution, but he does not mince words to say the institution has gone wrong. Um, and I think that is... Um, to some extent relevant, I think, to a lot of, of the way a lot of people feel about society in general today, um, regardless of whether justified or not is not my issue, but just that that seems to be a big thing. So we ended chapter two, um, where the Lord goes to Jerusalem at Passover and that there are people who see the signs that he did and believe. Um, and it ended with this interesting verse that would have made more sense to Jews in a time where he says that um, he needed no one to bear witness of man because he himself knew what was in man. Um, and that was a concept to the Jews that nobody could know what goes on inside of someone other than God. 
So this was even its own indirect way of saying that Jesus is God. I'm, I'm revisiting that part because we're in this chapter going to be talking about Nicodemus, who seems to be one of those people that we left off in chapter two, that we're wondering about who Jesus was because of these signs. Okay. Um, and so Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. So I want you to have that backdrop that this man that we're about to encounter, um, I'll get into more detail when we start analyzing it, is a member of the Sanhedrin. Okay. So this is the equivalent today of somebody being on the Holy Synod. Okay. Who is now coming in secret to be like, who is this guy? Right. I've seen these things he's doing. Not sure what I make of him yet. Um, but because I'm a public figure, perhaps, um, I'm going to meet him in secret. I'm not going to meet him um, in a public space. Okay. So we'll read it and then we'll, we'll start um, breaking it apart. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anew. The wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can this be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand this. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea, where he remained with them and baptized. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people came and were baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purifying, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond Jordan, to whom you bore witness, here he is baptizing. And all are going to him. John answered, no one can receive anything except what is given from heaven, given him from heaven. 
You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and of the earth he speaks. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He who receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for it is not by measure that he gives the Spirit. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Okay, we shall plow into it. Um, those of you willing to put on your cameras, thank you. Thank you to those of you who already have. It makes it way less uh, weird for me. Um, just a, a word, like my approach to, to Bible study, because I know I can be annoying sometimes. Um, while I do care about meditations and I, and I throw them in there as well sometimes, what I'm trying to do a little bit, I might not be that good at it, um, is... I want the world of the Bible to become real to you guys, the context, what things meant when they said it, um, what a Jew in the first century would think if they heard some of these things, um, so that you can understand the impact that it has when it's being said. Because sometimes when we just repeat words that are nice, um, they're just words, um, and they lose the how epic they might have been um, in their context. Um, like John 3.16, I think is one of the most overused verses in the Bible. Um, it's beautiful, but it's become cliche. Um, like, for God so loved the world, it's t-shirts, it's brands now. But um, I want us to kind of get into the things that, that are meant. Um, so to do that, let's just step back for a second and think about what the, the, the writer is doing here. Right? When somebody sits down to write stories, they, excuse me, they have a purpose in mind. Right. If I were to sit down and write down stories, which I do sometimes with people that I've met, um, there's a reason why I'm writing it. It might be because I want them to be remembered. It might be because there's a specific story. It might be because there's confusion around the person that a person wants to set straight. Right. It might be in response to an issue um, that's going on. Right. And so the Gospels are no different. They're written for a purpose. And the Gospel of John is not written to just tell stories. Because John himself says that at the end of the gospel, he says, there are so many stories we could have told and if we're gonna, it would fill all the books in the world. But I write this so that you know who he is. So the purpose that St. John has said himself is, I want you to know that this is not some guy. I want you to know that this Jesus is the son of God. Um, and that's why everything throughout the gospel of John are these drop the mic statements that are sometimes lost just because of language that Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is not just a nice guy. And we're gonna see that really evidently in this, in this conversation that, that Nicodemus has with God because Nicodemus, as we're gonna see shortly, is treating Jesus like he is just another cool guy. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that at the time of this gospel being written, there are people who thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. So you'll notice that the gospel of John has some very pointed statements to say, even John the Baptist did not 
think of himself in that way, right? So there's a bit of a defense going on um, throughout the gospel where it can even come off sometimes being anti-St. John if you read into it too much, whereas it seems to me that the point is him trying to say, no, John knew who he was and you need to know who John was. John is the witness. John is not the bridegroom. John is the best man, as we'll see in this chapter. Um, and the other context to be aware of as we're reading throughout the rest of this gospel is that early Christians were having a rough time with the early Jews. Um, and I'm not saying that to be even angry with the Jews. It makes sense, right? To the Jews, they felt hijacked because early Christians prayed in the synagogue still. The split between temple and, and, and church didn't really happen very formally until around the destruction of the temple in the year 70. Up until then, there was a lot of shared space. That's why even St. Paul, when you read the epistles, is going into synagogues and preaching. When he gets kicked out, he does his own thing. But he starts in the synagogues, right? And so there's a lot of contention between these Christians who are not yet called Christians, but these Christ-believing Jews who are still seen as Jews and non-Christ-believing Jews. And so you can tell that some of that angst is carried into this gospel. Um because of what they're going through in their own time, right? Because you'll see them say the, the gospel writer always going, the Jews. And he's clearly not talking about the Jews as a whole. He seems to be talking about the leadership, um, those in authority, those in, in power, okay? So we come back to our narrative. Nicodemus, um, as we said, seems to be one of these people at the end of chapter two who is seeing these signs that the Lord is doing, right? Which means that more than the wedding of Cana has happened, um, because there's only been one mentioned so far, specifically in the gospel. Um, and he's got his question marks of who, who is this guy, right? Um, and it's almost like he's being set up to be by the, the gospel as this spokesperson for those who believe but aren't sure. Um, and he's coming by night um, to ask about who he is. We're going to see Nicodemus, Nicodemus mentioned again in John 7 and um, John 19. And I think it's a, I, I, I want to just point out it's interesting because tradition tells us that Nicodemus eventually believes and becomes a bishop. Okay. But what's interesting to me is that in the Gospel of John, we don't know. We don't know whether Nicodemus ever believes. We just see him as a nice guy who is in dialogue with faith. And I actually think that's cool and relevant in modern society because there are people that we talk to about faith, those who have lapsed and left, those who are atheist thinking of coming in, like there's, there's all sorts of people. And that it's cool to see that the Lord himself in the flesh dealt with the same thing and how he handled it, right? That he didn't have this expectation that by the time Nicodemus walks away, he better be with him, right? He takes Nicodemus where he's at and accepts him and he comes at night, right? And St. John, in the Gospel of John, this night thing is not an accident, right? This whole gospel is light, dark, life, death, right? Um, and so he's saying that Nicodemus is ignorant. Nicodemus is a man of the night, right? He's a person who doesn't know yet. He's a person who hasn't understood truth yet. And so he dialogues in darkness, right? Um, and it's, it's, I think that's really cool. So there's a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, who are the Jews. He comes by night and he says, Rabbi, and it shows you 
how this is his approach to God. Teacher, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God. Because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's calling him a teacher. He's not the teacher sent from God. He's a. He's putting, he's approaching Christ on equal footing to just other cool teachers. Right? God, he's not seeing him as exalted, the one sent from God. He's just clearly a good guy. Um, which is important, again, we'll come to it in our modern dialogues with people, that our Lord isn't responding favorably to that he's some guy. This is not a humility issue, right? This is an identity issue, right? Nicodemus is lowering him. The Lord doesn't yell at him, but he's like, no, I'm not just some guy. Um, he doesn't explicitly say that yet, but we'll get to it. Because the Lord answers him and the Lord gets, he just cuts right through, <laughs> right? He was like, uh, amen, amen, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born anew, and we're going to come back to this word anothen, um, uh, in Greek, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, kingdom is a problem, right? Because again, we talk about this language when we read the Bible, like we just, we don't raise an eyebrow. But I want you to think about right now, imagine if AP came to your home on some pastoral visit and he says to you, in order for us to build this revolution, we need X, Y, and Z. You would ask me, I hope, what revolution are you talking about? Right? That you don't just smile and nod. Because sometimes you read the Bible and it says the kingdom of heaven. We're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the kingdom of heaven. Right? But that had a context in its original meaning. Right? And the Jews actually had a context for it. It just wasn't the same as the Lord's. Right? So when the Lord is dropping this this kingdom language the jews had a sense of kingdom it was a physical kingdom it was a real kingdom right so to them it's like oh good he's talking kingdom he's talking about let's get rid of these romans let's get rid of our occupiers let's restore the kingdom because all of god's people are going to be in the kingdom and all the bad people or the bad jews even anyone who's bad is not in the kingdom Okay, and they would refer to prophetic language to think this Ezekiel, um, Zechariah, especially, but all sorts of these, some of the Psalms, some of the things that Moses said, right there, they have this earnest expectation, this hopeful expectation, this promised expectation of the kingdom. Right. That's why Nicodemus wasn't like, hey, what kingdom are you talking about? Nicodemus has just assumed a common understanding of the word kingdom right but the lord seems to be appealing to a different um kind of kingdom the kingdom described in ezekiel 36 where the promise of the new covenant has come in where it says i will sprinkle clean water upon you the lord is saying born again of water and spirit now pay attention to this verse that has both water and spirit okay I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you 
and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Right? I actually think that all of John 3 is framed from this. Um, because even the ordinances part is how the chapter ends, right? If we then follow his commandments or ordinances or, or law. Now, I want to meditate for a second that, that the Lord says, unless you're born and new, you cannot see the kingdom of God, right? The word he used was see. You're not going to see things. He says, until you accept things, until you believe things. And I think this is so important because in our modern struggle with faith, I think we sometimes forget that what belief means, right? Belief today is synonymous with stupidity because people take belief to mean blind trust. That is not what belief means. That's not what faith means. There are those that have blind trust, and that may be a good or bad thing, but that's not the, the point of discussion, right? But belief is a sense of trust, right? And so if you view something with skepticism, if you see things in a certain way, it's not going to work for you to grow in it, right? Think about a relationship, about relationship problems or conflicts, okay? Think about you having a relationship issue, and someone comes and tells you you're crazy, for liking someone or for dealing with someone in a particular way. How often have you or I responded with, I hear what you're saying, but you just can't see, note the word see, you just can't see things the way I see them because you're stuck in your viewpoint, right? that we use that language of seeing, that if you've developed your own way of thinking, it's hard for you to see in any other way. If you can't trust me, you're not gonna see how I see, right? And so this is the, the, the backdrop to this whole gospel. That's why Christ doesn't keep on asking everybody, do you believe me? Do you believe me? Because depending on your answer to the question depends on how you see. Are you going to look at things with your sight or with real sight? The contrast is going to come through all throughout this gospel. I get really excited about this. Forgive me. I'm sorry if I dwell on this too much. Um, so there's something going on like that here. It's not the only interpretation. It's meditation. But you're not going to see God if you refuse to believe him as your starting point. You won't get it. Right? You won't see what others are seeing. And in fact, what others are seeing may even sound repulsive to you, right? I'll give you a, a weird example. I was talking to an ex-Mormon once um, and she didn't leave them on, on bad terms. Um, amen, sight begins in faith. Um, uh, and she was on a trip with us to a monastery and she was considering um, joining the, the Orthodox church. So I was sitting at the back of the bus and I was asking her a question, like, can I ask you some things about Mormons, because I only know status quo cliche stuff about the Mormons. Um, and it's usually not flattering. It's always mockery. Um, and so one of the questions I asked her was about this whole concept of Jesus and the devil being siblings. And this is, I'm using this as an example of the whole seeing, 
right? So she says, you know, I don't know why that's weird to you. If you divorce yourself for a second from your belief that Jesus is God, right? Like, like just pretend for a second that that's not what you believe. Don't you as a Christian view other Christians as your brothers and sisters in God? So Jesus and Lucifer are siblings in that they're both from God, right? I mean, they might have more particulars than that. But what I'm trying to get at here, obviously, I theologically disagree. However, the point that I'm trying to make here is that when you see it their way, instead of starting off with you're dumb or I reject you, you may see that there's a coherent thought that follows. But if my starting point is whatever comes out of your mouth is dumb, whatever comes out of your mouth is biased, as opposed to looking for truth, like the Gospel of John is all about, then the dialogue is going to go nowhere. And this is what we're talking about now is dialogue. John and Nicodemus and God, they're in dialogue, right? This is a question and answer period, and there's going to be a few of them in this gospel, right? We're going to see Samaritan woman come up, the dude from chapter five that causes all sorts of problems. There's going to have all these, these back and forths um, going on. So Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, this is funny. I think it's funny um, before we get into the word Anothen and, and stuff like that. But I like this because Nicodemus is, is a big shot, right? Nicodemus is a hardcore devout Jew who's a guy you go to for questions. But it shocks me and doesn't how easy it is for everybody, leaders included, spiritual, religious leaders included, to forget the spiritual and religious context of everything and go straight for the secular, okay? Because he doesn't view this as a spiritual concept. He goes straight for that. That makes no sense. What do you mean he's going to be born again? Is some old guy going to enter the womb again? It didn't even cross his mind for a second that there's any spiritual context to this, right? And I think this happens a lot in church, Actually, I think Christians are, are, are horrible Christians to each other. Forgive me. I, I often find it's easier to be a Christian around a non-Christian than it is to be among Christians. Like, to give a parallel to, to, to Nicodemus going straight for the secular. Imagine if you're at church and um, somebody comes to you, bring you a conflict that happened at church, right? And they're like, this guy was a complete jerk and you know what I did, right? Now the gospel would say you turn the other cheek, right? That should be our assumption if we're talking as Christians, right? But instead the person is like, you know what I did? I exposed their lie in front of everybody and I put that person in their place, right? And now imagine if the response of the Christian, the so-called Christian is that a boy, that's how you do it, right? That we've completely lost the spiritual context and gone straight for the secular. This is what's happened right now, right? Is that is that Nicodemus went straight for the worldly view. He didn't he didn't give it just even a, a glimpse at that, which is an interesting problem because this gospel is written in Greek, Greek, and the word for from above, anothen, has two meanings in Greek. It can mean again. And it can mean from above. 
So a person reading in Greek would ask the question of, is Christ saying, unless you're born again? Or is Christ saying, unless you're born from above? Right? And so there's an assumption about which one he means. Um, there's debate about, about whether Christ spoke Greek or not. Um, because this word difference isn't in the in the Aramaic, um, it's 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 in the Greek, but it really sounds like the gospel writer wants us to ask ourselves which one did you interpret it as? Where did your mind go to, again or from above? Right? We associate with this with with baptism. We're going to come to it, um, but that's what anofen can 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 mean. And it's going to be used again um, in this in this gospel in John 19. When we get to it, we'll point it out. Um, Jesus answered, Amen, Amen. Truly, indeed, I say to you, I'm saying it again, Nicodemus. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Okay? Um, in a way, try and read this with, that was one of the flesh, capital F, is flesh, small f. And that which is born of capital S, spirit, is, is born is spirit, small s. Okay? Because the definitive article is used um, for flesh and spirit. Okay? Um, so, a human becomes human. A flesh, a human flesh becomes flesh because... His parents give birth to him, right? Now, whereas what Christ is saying, you're born naturally by being born of a human father um, and mother, but you're born spiritually when you're born by the heavenly father. You receive physical life only from your human origin origins, but your eternal life comes from the Heavenly Father, specifically, the Lord says here, through the Son, to whom has been given the authority to give life. This is a bold claim, right? This is not a coffee conversation, right? Where you're like, hmm, interesting. So you give life, that's really cute. That's not, that. Like these are like drop the mic kind of, of statements that are being said. So more simply, Everything belongs to the thing that it comes from, okay? It's, I know that's a simple, obvious concept, um, but let, let's try and get it, right? We reflect our origins. If we come from some material, death, then our end is death, and everything we do is deathly. And by that, I don't, I'm not even using death here as a negative word, right? I'm using death here to mean mortality. If I'm born mortal, everything I do is mortal, Everything about me is mortal, right? That's just how mortal life goes. But the Lord is saying, if we come from God, then we become born, begotten of spirit, life. Again, this contrast between life and death throughout this chapter, this gospel, right? So he's putting, again, this mortal, besides immortal, the things of the world becoming against the things of the world that is, your light versus real light. So the Lord is showing real birth versus our birth. Real birth is to be born of God, right? This birth that you have, eh, it's just birth. It dies. 
my birth doesn't die. And, and, and what we'll see here, the gospel is saying, and I want to give it to you. I want to give it to you. Do you want it? Right? It's going to constantly be asked. The birth of the world to becoming versus the begetting from that of the world that is. Now, if that sounds philosophical right now, forgive me. Okay. Think of people, but I want to think about this in, an, in, an, in another, a, a weird way. This is also a little bit philosophical, but think of people who you've met who sound deep. Okay. Or even think of the concept that we have when we say to somebody, yo, that was deep. Okay. Now, my question is, how do you know that it was deep? What made it deep? Was it deep because you just liked it? Right? Or was it, or was it actually deep? So I'm going somewhere with this. If we belong to just the body, the things that die, mortal things, you won't see beauty in concepts or ideas. But the fact that you can think of a concept as deep or beautiful or, or, or true is a sign of your being born of spirit, that there's something more than mortality. Otherwise, concepts wouldn't be beautiful. It's, it's philosophical, but I hope that kind of um, drove, drove it home a little bit. Um, but because we have a spirit, small s, we're born of spirit, we are seeking spirit, capital S. Where did I go? Now, um, and like I said, I, I won't spend too much time on it. The differentiation of flesh and spirit here is not trying to make one good and one bad. It's more that we've been altogether living only according to flesh and ignoring that we are also spirit, right? And creating this, this division. Um, and so what the Lord is trying to offer is saying, you're meant to be more than flesh, right? I want you to be more than what you are by nature. Your natural birth is mortality. I want to give you me immortality. Right, we'll keep coming back to that refrain from the midnight praises. He took what is ours and gave us what is his. Right, and among them is this immortality. It's his spirit, his own spirit, capital S. We return, verse seven. Do not marvel, don't, don't be shocked, okay? That I'm saying to you, you've gotta be born on Ophen, again or from above. And then he has this really cool play on words that's lost in English. The wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Okay. The Greek word, as well as the Aramaic word, nivma in Greek, and actually in Arabic, for those of us here who speak Arabic, it's the same in the Aramaic, roh. Right. Spirit can mean wind or spirit, the, the word that's being used. And so... Christ is, it seems, intentionally doing a play on words, right? Where he's saying the wind, or is it spirit? Is it material, or is it spirit? Goes wherever it wants, and no one knows how to make, how to trace it. And he's saying that's what it's like to be born of this spirit, okay? Um, and when he says nobody knows the sound of it, the word used for sound, let's make it a double pound the word, 
can also mean voice. And so it can also be him referring to um, himself. So why is he using wind as an example? Okay, is that he's trying to say that wind, which is a common image for the spirit, like this play on words, um, is often used um, even by the Jews and in Jewish literature um, to be a, a symbol of, of God, right? Because no one knows the origin of wind. You can't tell where, where the wind comes from and you can't see the wind. And no one seems to be able to control the wind. You only know the wind's existence by its effects, but you don't know the wind, right? And so it was not an uncommon analogy. I think even in modern literature it is. I think there's a book called Who Has Seen the Wind that, that touches on that. But um, So what Christ is trying to say in this analogy is that both wind and spiritual birth that Nicodemus is confused about, saying both of these are mysterious in origin and movement. Wind goes wherever it wants. And even though the wind's origin is invisible, its effects can be observed. Same thing with the spirit. So he's saying that spiritual birth, even if you can't see it, right? Even in this baptism that we do, you don't see the Holy Spirit descend upon a person and the person become a son or daughter of God. He's saying, nonetheless, it is happening, right? An effect is occurring that you can't see in the same way that with this wind, which is also spirit, you don't know what's going on. It's a really, really good analogy, which is really cool as well to see how God teaches, right? That wouldn't have been lost on Nicodemus, right? We're not in that world, so we kind of have to like extract the info from it. For Nicodemus, this would have went straight to him, right? That the Lord is using these, these analogies to help people get it. But Nicodemus still doesn't get it, <laughs> Okay, so Nicodemus says, verse 9, I don't get it. <laughs> right? That's his response. And Jesus answers, and I would love, there's so many times I would love to know how the Lord, what tone he's using. I assume a tone when I'm reading, but I don't know. Where I don't know if he's being coy or laughing or being stern. I don't know. But he says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know? You don't get it? Right? It sounds like it might be a gentle chastisement. Actually, a better translation might be, not are you a teacher of Israel, but saying, you hold the office. You are, you are the, the so-called teacher. It's almost like a question of, and what exactly are you teaching if you don't get this? Right? That's your, that's your rule. Truly, I say to you, and this is very interesting because suddenly the Lord switches to plural. Throughout this, he's been in the first person. Suddenly he's, he's speaking in the plural. We speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. Um, now, um, he later says this in the first person, almost the exact same words in John 8 and, and John 12. Here he speaks in the plural. Why? I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, not sure. Could be a sign of majesty. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's unique only to here for some reason. Um, so it could be Trinitarian. I don't know. Um, and it might even be referring to the disciples who, if they're with him, right, of saying we collectively as a group do, we're not, we're not really sure. Um, just an interesting note. Now, the Lord continues. If I've told you 
earthly things, human things, things of the flesh, things of the body, and you don't believe, how are you going to believe me if I tell you heavenly things? No one has gone up, ascended into heaven, except him who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay. Now, for those of you who might not remember the story of the serpent from the book of Numbers, right, is the book of Numbers, the Jews were rebellious as usual as a people. That's like the story of the Old Testament is rebellion and then rebuke, rebellion, rebuke, rebellion, rebuke. So they're in a state of rebellion. And a plague comes upon them. They're all dying. And Moses is instructed to lift up a bronze serpent that's fixed on some piece of, of wood. And whoever would look at the snake lived. Now, it's very interesting because the Lord himself is now saying that this is me. That's not like the church's meditation on it. Right? This is Christ himself saying, that's me. That's a big deal. Right? Especially because Feast of the Cross, which was actually last week. Right? That one of the types of the cross is this serpent raised on the piece of wood. Um, but when Moses intercedes, this is what happens. Now, this analogy, this lifting up of the serpent, Christ is saying, I'm going to be lifted up too. That's going to be the crucifixion as we see, right? But that also the looking at him in faith is becomes the source of salvation. It heals the people in the Old Testament when they look in belief on this sign in the same way that it would, they would look and believe by seeing Christ. So on one level, Christ is revealing something about himself that he's savior. But there's another very cool thing going on that's a little bit ironic, maybe in the Lannis Morissette kind of way, not really ironic, but um, in the sense that, yes, he's revealed something, but where Nicodemus is at is similar to where the Jews were at in the same story, right? From the book of Numbers. In the sense that their sin and their failure and their murmuring and their standing in judgment of God, the Jews were judging God, right? The Jews are judging God and saying, you suck. You took us from, from Egypt to die. You think we're this, you blah, 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 blah. And now this is what you do. What are you? And they went on and on and on and on and on, right? This was the state of the Jews as a whole when Christ came, but it's also specifically the state of Nicodemus in the context of this conversation. Nicodemus has said, you are a teacher. And it's almost like he's holding Christ politely, albeit politely, on trial. Who are you? Right? Meanwhile, Christ is saying, I'm the guy that you're going to look at to be healed. Right? I'm not some guy. Right? Because I am the guy, quote unquote, to use monocolloquial, who went up and came down. No one else has. So the Jews might have said Elijah, Enoch. But Christ is saying, there's only one who went up and came down. Me. The one who, from chapter one, is in the bosom of the Father. I'm not the same as those guys. 
I am the son of man. And the son of man is a reference to Daniel, the messianic figure of the son of man. It is one of the titles that Christ appropriates to himself. Interestingly enough, the one title that Christ does not appropriate to himself in any of the gospels is son of David. I suspect, this is my meditation, because I can't speak for God, because son of David gave a wrong connotation of the kingdom. Because they expected the son of David to reestablish the kingdom, the earthly political kingdom. And Christ wasn't interested in that. Right? So he uses these other titles, but not this one. So Jesus is proclaiming to bring new life. He's flowed from talking about being born from water and spirit, from Ezekiel, like we talked about, to giving them an Old Testament um, narrative, the snake in the wilderness, to say, throughout history, we've given you new life. And I'm here to give you that new life. And to get that new life, you've got to be born of water and spirit. Right? That's where this is all going. Um, that Christ has descended from God's presence to raise men up to God, to, um, to, to lift them up. It's, it's very, very beautiful in my, in my view anyway. Um, so Christ is the only one who came from heaven goes up. He's not Elijah, he's not Enoch. Um, and we're seeing this lifted up this lifted up concept, sorry, I lost my train of thought, but the lifted up concept is interesting because that became the source of glory, right? There's their salvation. And we're going to see further on in the gospel that the Lord refers to his lifting up as his moment of glory, the cross. Um, just as the bonus info for those of you who might be interested, um, it's interesting that the Jews have their own versions of what we have. Like we have Bible and we have exegesis and we have patristics right? The Jews have that as well. They have things called Targum and Talmud um, that are meditations and explanations and canons um, and things like that. Um, what's very interesting is that the Jews themselves saw the serpent elevated on the cross as a symbol of the law, a symbol of the word of God. And they even wrote, they had a symbol, this is Jewish writing, not Christian. They had a symbol of salvation to remind them of the precept of your law, for he who turned toward it was saved, not by what he saw, but by you, the savior of all. That's a Jewish meditation. Um, and that is exactly what we're saying about the logos, right? That they, they themselves saw this symbolism in it, that this belief in it is not just, hey, I trust. It's specifically their belief in, in God and what God, God does. Um, that does the saving. Um, and so it's, it's, I think it's cool. To us, obviously, this is incarnate in the act of baptism, right? That's the moment that we, that we take on this act to say, here is when you're born of water and spirit. We believe that when a person is baptized, that they become born of the spirit, capital S, and thus receive the spirit, capital S, right? To become children of the kingdom. I encourage you all to go through and read the Liturgy of Baptism on your Coptic reader, um, or it's probably available on, online somewhere. And actually, the gospel reading for baptism is this chapter. So 
we get into this famous section, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Um, I'm going to break it down in a second. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. Okay. So I want to read this more in the context of this discussion, not the, the, the pop culture version that it's become. I'm sure there's nice meditations in the pop culture version, um, but in, in context, right? Death is the natural human state. That judgment is now, right? If I die, I die. That was the present state of people when the Lord came. They just die. Salvation from death, i.e. life, is what the Son of Man is giving. Okay? So, the unknowable God gave himself as a servant in the form of his own Son made flesh. This is what this passage is saying. So that everyone who believes in this God made flesh wouldn't die. And not just have life like Israelites who eventually died, right? Not just life in the way that everybody had that ended, but to have eternal life, to have real life. He's saying you've got your fake life or your mortal life. I want to give you real life, not just your small L life. How? We have no idea, right? We as, as humans, right? God understands that we don't, right? Um we know that what Christ is doing is stripping this world away in the Gospel of John from all that's more and replacing with life. How he does it, we don't know. All we know is we're asked to come and participate in it, right? And we're going to see this crazy stripping down of this so-called life that they have down to its most raw and crude form, which will be the crucifixion. And Christ will be asking, when he says, if you believe on me, you can have real life. So Christ is going to be asking, when you look at this bloody mess, this bloody scene that you're going to get to, and it's bloody, and we'll talk about it when we get there. Can you see past it and see what this mortality ends to and believe who I am and what I want to give you? Because if so, I'll give you life in the way that I have life. Because I'm going to pass through this mortal life to give you the immortal one. But if you are blocked by this world of becoming, you've missed it. If you see the life beyond it, capital L life, the glorious word, capital W, then you get it. This is revelation. So let me try and rephrase that passage just read. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son for the whole world. Whoever believes him will not be dead at the end of natural life 
or of, of mortal life. The father sent him not to bring bad news or judgment, but to fix the world, right? So he's not yelling at us. He's saying, I wasn't sent here to bring you bad news. I'm the good news. I'm the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. I'm here to fix the world, to save it. Whoever believes in him, the son, will be the verdict, the, pr- the pronouncement of the verdict, will pronounce wrong for not believing. So whoever does not believe in him will pronounce wrong for not believing. And here's the pronouncement of the verdict about right or wrong. What do I mean when I pronounce a verdict? What am I saying? What is my judgment on the earth? What am I pronouncing about the world? I'm saying that light came to the world. Here's the story. Here's the case that you brought before the judge. Light came to the world and people preferred darkness to light because their deeds are dark. Everyone who does evil rejects good. Everyone who loves dark prefers dark and does not go to light so as not to be exposed. But those who do what's true go to the light and it's because their deeds are done in God. That's my rephrasing of that passage, okay? Today, people don't like the language of judgment, okay? They make it sound like judgment is always a proud act of putting people down or judging someone's character. That's not the truest form of the word judgment, right? Um, and so when, we're, when Rod's saying to, to judge, he's not saying to call people bad people or good people, right? So people will say judge not out of context and make it somehow seem like not judging means never acknowledging that there's such thing as right and wrong. That's, that's not a proper Christian understanding. If something is true, inevitably what is not true is false. There's a judgment already, right? By saying something's true, you've already judged, and I'll use the word judge, something as wrong. Now, wrong begets wrong, right? The very judgment of wrong is the wrong itself. What do I mean by that? Okay, because I know that sounds bizarre. If I'm sick, I pronounce myself wrong from a health perspective, right? If I was right, I'm healthy. If I'm sick, I'm wrong, right? I'm not as I ought to be. My judgment, consequently, is illness, but it's a natural judgment is what I'm trying to get at. It's not because somebody made up a concept of health and because I'm not healthy, I'm sick, that someone said, aha, I punish you with insert illness here. It's the judgment, the consequence of my lack of health is disease. The judgment itself is the illness. It's not speaking about the quality of person right? It's not saying sick people are bad people. It's saying sick people are sick people <laughs> because of the fact of health, right? So when God is saying there's death here, he's pronouncing death, saying that's your state. You're in death. Your judgment is death. Your verdict is death. I'm here to give you life. Now, if I refuse to acknowledge I'm ill, I prefer illness to health, right? So my deeds can't be reproved. For example, if I refuse to acknowledge that I need to exercise, 
it must be because I prefer my lifestyle for whatever reason, right? If I were to acknowledge I'm wrong, it would mean that I have to change, right? It would mean that my deeds would change to be done in hell. This is what Christ is saying. People in darkness prefer the darkness. They don't want to be recruited by the light because their deeds are evil. But a person who does good does them because they're in God, he says, because a person who does healthy deeds is doing healthy deeds because of health. That's what Christ is saying, right? And that we tend to not want to go to light when we prefer darkness, right? And that's true of all of us, myself included, right? Um, I, I, there's a person that I, that I, I know who is blessed to see uh, um, a saint and I refused to meet him like <laughs> for the first period because specifically because there was something wrong that I was doing that I wasn't ready to deal with yet. I didn't want to be reproved by light yet because I preferred darkness straight up, right? And we all go through that to various degrees. If we all always chose light, we'd all be free from sin. We don't, we often choose darkness, right? So there is a struggle to choose light Right, but this is what Christ is saying. I came to fix it. I came to give real life. Um, I'm not here to judge you and say you're all bad. You're already judged, you're already dying. I'm here to give you life for those of you who want it. Those of you who don't want it, don't want it because some of you don't want me. I'm here, the light is here and some of you don't like me, no problem. You're already judged because you just continue to be in disease. Those of you who want to be in the light can be in the light. He's saying something very simple. Um, I'm saying that because we've turned that whole passage into this really bubbly, like, give me a hug and sing kumbaya type thing. Um, cool. But I think he's saying something far deeper um, than how it's socially being, being used. I'm not putting down those who use it that way. I'm just saying I think it means more than the social uh, context. So that's where Christ ends it, where we have no idea how Nicodemus reacts. Right? He's clearly not convinced yet because we see him twice more in the gospel and he's still not considered a believer yet. Um, but who knows how he took it? That was the first stage of the, the conflict. Um, now, this next part, I'm going to try and, and rush. Um, we started at like 7.35, so I'm almost an hour in. I hope that you guys, if you guys are bored of your mind and you want to leave, feel free. I won't be offended. Um, I just do want to finish chapter three. I don't like splitting the, the segments if possible because um, most of John are standalone chapters until certain sections. Um, this next part is this fight between John the Baptist and his disciples with unknown people, kind of unknown people about ritual purification. Um, and this leads to a discussion. Now you've got to remember, like we said from the backdrop, in the time of writing this gospel, there are people who believe that John the Baptist is the Messiah, okay? Um, and um, refuse to be Christians as a result. And the gospel writer is trying to make a point of even John knows who, who, who Christ is. Um, but this issue of ritual purification um, is gonna be an ongoing one about the law that we see at the gospel. I won't spend too much time on that for, for now. Um, the other part here is this baptism is that there's this question of, is Jesus competing? Because it seems like his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, 
think that Jesus is competition, um, which is very interesting, but so real at the same time, but we'll come to that in a section in, in, a, in, in a moment. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the land of Judea. There he remained with them and baptized. Though, as we're told later on, Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. Um, and so these disciples are baptizing the name of Jesus. And this is clearly not the baptism of the New Testament when the Holy Spirit comes. Um, this seems to be similar to the baptism that John is doing, one of repentance, um, which might be why John's disciples are upset, actually. Um, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people came and were baptized. Now, I, I'm going to pause for a second. I think it's cool that we might forget sometimes when the, when the Gospels or the Epistles name specific places and names, because to the person reading at the time, this is really cool, right? Like, it would be like me writing some story and being like, yeah, 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 it was on Port Man Bridge, right? So a Vancouverite will be like, oh, no way. It was that, I drive on that like every day. Right, whereas somebody in Lithuania might not have any idea, right? But it, it makes the story closer to the people that it's reaching because it's saying, yeah, I was there. You know that place? That's where that happened. Um, it's, it's really cool. It's like for me when I go to St. Anthony's Monastery in Egypt and I go to St. Anthony's Cave and I'm like, this is the cave, right? Or in modern history, when I walk by where Bonayustos used to live, right? And be like, that's where he went for walks. That's, that's cool. Right, it becomes more real um, that when you read what these people are writing, it, it was alive to people who were who are reading it. So, the Lord is baptizing now. Discussion arises between John's disciples and a Jew over purifying, and they're fighting. Now, these disciples come to John, and they say, "Rabbi," right now, the rabbi is John, not the Lord. He who is with you beyond the Jordan, they're coming, they're tattling, they're upset, right? To whom you bore witness, this guy who's supposed to be less than you, you are the one who made him a big deal, right? That guy that you bigged up, here he is baptizing and everyone's going to him, right? So it seems like they might have been expecting John to be like that guy, right? You thought you know a guy, but this is the beauty of John. John knows who he is. And John knows his role. John knows his goal. John's response is, no one receives anything except that which is given him from heaven. He knows that what I'm giving isn't mine. That's from heaven. I'm not preaching me. I'm giving what heaven gave me, first of all. You yourselves, you my disciples, bear witness that I said, I told you, I am not Christ." But I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Right? The church belongs to the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, me, John, who stands and hears him, rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now full. He must increase and I must decrease. I want to give you an alternate translation of this passage that I, I found in one of the resources that I really, really liked. The, this last section where he says, I already told you who I am in, in plain English. You yourselves are my witnesses that I told you. I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent before him. The bridegroom gets the bride. 
the bridegroom's best man who waits there listening for him is overjoyed just to hear the bridegroom's voice. That's my joy, right? I, I'm the best man. And now my joy is complete. I got to hear the voice of the, of the groom. He must increase and I must, and I must decrease. The friend of the groom means best man, okay? And the Jewish custom, that's what I mean about being alive in the world of the Jews, um, it's, it's, it's called a, a shoshbin. And I actually think that's where the Arabic word for groomsman comes from, ishbin. Um, it's, a, it's the same root, root word. Um, and the groom's closest friend took care of arranging the whole wedding. That was what they did. Um, and St. Paul claims this actually in 2 Corinthians. Um, and so this special rule is entrusted to the best man and any kind of weirdness between the best man and the, and the groom would be seen as a social problem. If the bridegroom is, if the best man is jealous of the groom, there's a problem, right? The, 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 the best man is the best man because of that relationship. So if he suddenly wants to be the groom, something's messed up in the relationship. So St. John is putting them in their place and saying, I told you I'm not him. Why on earth are you coming to me with this problem? I already told you who I am. Now, there's something cool that you guys might, may or may not know. When he says, I must increase, he must increase, I must decrease. Another way of reading that is, I must wane while he waxes. And so actually the churches, the early church put St. John's feast day um, on, uh, I forget the names of the equinox, the summer solstice for St. John the Baptist, where the days get shorter, where days wane, sorry, winter. Um, sorry, no, summer, where they start to get shorter again. Um, and the winter solstice, the 25th, is when days that begin to get longer. That's when Christ was put. December 25th, for all intents and purposes, not to get into the debate about January 7th, December 25th and January 7th are the same day. The only reason why they're not the same right day right now is because of a choice to be on Julian or Gregorian. But the actual day is the same, right? So if we were to not have, if the, if the West hadn't switched to Gregorian, what we are now calling January 7th would have been December 25th. December 25th, sorry to make this more confusing, just translates to the 7th on, on Gregorian. That's all, right? So the church even put as a feast day, waning with John the Baptist and waxing with the Lord. We don't actually know when the Lord is born, right? Um, and so the, the, the church really loved this thing that St. John said right, that it got ingrained into the calendar. I think that's kind of cool, in my opinion. Um, and so St. John is saying, my work is done. The groom is here to marry his wife, I'm, which is the church. Um, I'm, I've done my role and I rejoice. I'm happy that I got to see this. Peter, go ahead. I just wanted to say, uh, there's also the fact that, that St. John the Baptist was born six months prior to Christ's birth. So backtracking from December 25th, you have, um, which is the winter solstice, you have uh, John the Baptist, but it all works together anyway. So it's really neat to see that 
Exactly. Only in the actual account of the gospel is he born six months before Christ. But it represents everything by choosing Christ's birth date as a, the winter uh, solstice. Someone say coincidence? I think not. Because um, it, <laughs> it could be both. Um, like it yeah. could be written into nature. Who knows? Um, I think it's beautiful. Um, so St. John is saying, my work's done. Like I should be happy. Um, I think it's something incredible for John to feel this way, right? How many of us can look at our role happily as handing people off, right? Our culture, we like to own things, possess things. We like to put our names on things. We make sure we get credit for what we do. We're worried if anybody else gets credit for what we did. We put copyrights on documents as though the truth is our own, right? We don't view things as not ours. We view things as very much ours, right? And we don't recognize when our time to go has gone, right? As servants, I think we're sometimes scared to tell someone to talk to someone else, right? Sometimes we get worried of what if they become closer to that person instead of me, right? Whereas if I'm more obsessed with the truth, I'm not looking for them to be attached to me. I want them to be attached to the truth. I'd want them to go to whoever it is. And often when we do send somebody to someone else, we want praise even for that, <laughs> right? We would want to make it clear that my sending you to someone else is a sign of my power and authority, right? Or we might even put caveats on the sending away, right? I'm sending you for this person for such and such reason, right? As though the person is bound somehow to me, right? I don't own anyone. Right? If we thought like St. John the Baptist, we'd never talk that way or have that conflict. But the point of all things is God. God is in all and all is God's and truth is truth because he is truth. A person who knows that is stable. Right, A person who recognizes that the truth is the truth because of it being itself the truth is going to be stable. That person won't even fear being rebuked. They won't be offended or bothered or their mood change if someone says, I think you've made a mistake or I think this could have been better or I think you've made an error. You'll only be bothered by someone saying that if you believe that you are the truth. If you don't believe you're the truth, you'll be perfectly content for somebody to point out a possible mistake, right? It'll just be like, oh, cool, I'm, I stand corrected, right? Or at least you'd be willing to have a, a conversation um, they'll see waning as a sign of God's waxing. And now the last part of this chapter, sorry again for going 15 minutes over. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and of the earth he speaks. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his, witness, his testimony. He who receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for it is not by measure that he gives the spirit. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life. He who does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. The one who is of earth, just to rephrase some of this, only knows the earth and the word the, for speaks of the earth here, it's, it's, it's for 
the keeners in here, lale, it means chatters, right? You think people from the earth, they just chatter. They just chatter about earthly things. Whereas the word that Christ says about himself, he's saying, but the one who comes from above, he's saying, I'm not chattering. I'm speaking. Now, for me, this is a eureka moment. This is a deep moment. It might not be for you. He's saying, you, you earthly people, your speech is chatter. God's speaking, real speaking, God's word-ing is me. It's God become flesh. I am God's speaking. And that's why he then says, and what I speak is true because what I'm speaking isn't an idea. It's what's real. I'm being. I'm the world that is. So I am, my I am ink is the word of God. It's, I get goosebumps like with that personally. It's so profound and yet no one probably had any clue what he was saying. Right? It probably just came off as, 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 as randomness. And actually, eventually we'll see in John 7 through 10, they're just going to tell him, I think you're, you're not so. Right? You're, you're, you're crazy. That's all crazy talk. Whatever it is you're saying is weird. Right? Now, because what, whom God has sent utters the words of God. For it is not by measure it gives a spirit. For the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And so this ties to the baptismal part. Because he's saying, because it's me, what we talked about above, who gets to give you that new life. I have that authority. And so it all comes together. And that's why I didn't want to even split it from um, the, the beginning, right? God is that Jesus is the Logos. The Lord our God is the speaking of God. It's not chattering. It's not parroting. What Christ speaks is truth, right? I, I'll leave it there so I don't uh, over, I could keep going, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Any um, questions, um, comments, um, uh, meditations or, or, or anything? I'll also check the, the chat in a second. Are there any that are, that are live, first of all? I have a, um, at the beginning, you said um, that Nicodemus, um, like Christ was dealing with him where he was, and he was kind of giving him his space. Um, but you also have the story in the Gospels where um, the two disciples, like, one's like, I have to go bury my father. And he's like, if you're not ready to bear, if you're not ready to follow me now, then you're basically never going to be ready kind of thing. How do you, I, I could see both as being true, but how do you reconcile two? I think the difference is the context of what the person wants from Christ. Nicodemus, even if imperfect, Nicodemus is also going out on a limb, right? And Nicodemus is not coming to him saying, I want to follow you like these other people were that he says, but let me do this first. 
Nicodemus is saying, I just have questions for you. Whereas the ones that he sends away, they're coming in the context of claiming, I'm ready to follow you. Right? And he's like, okay, come. Okay, but wait, let me do this. And he's like, no. Right? To be honest with you, this is a personal meditation. And we'll, we'll I, I don't remember, that's, no, that's not in this, I don't think it's in this gospel. But um, I suspect, I, I obviously can't say this is what God would or wouldn't do. I actually suspect that if they had said, yes, we're coming, Christ would probably have said, go bury and come. That's my personal suspicion. Um, because Christ's point when he was saying, let the dead bury the dead, unless you love father, mother, brother, sister, more than me, you're not worthy. Love here is the choosing of saying, I am the one that gives meaning to those. So truth first, everything else secondary. So if you choose mother, brother, sister, family, whatever it is, first, you're saying that those supersede their actual meaning and their actual meaning comes from me. I'm first because I give meaning. So it's not about, nah, unless you like me more, it's saying I am the source of it all. So you can't seek the fruit and ignore the tree, right? Tend to the tree and you'll enjoy the fruit. So I think, I think that if they had chosen Christ first, I actually think he would have said, go, go bury him and, and come. Um, but that's, that's just a, a meditation. A good observation. Sort of kind of like when, uh, when uh, Mary was, uh, we, that was, when, when Judas objects to her wiping his feet and he says, the pork you have with you always, but me you do not have always. And then he says, the least, as, as much as you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So I guess it's kind of the same thing because like you said, it's the foundation. Where's the foundation of what you're doing? Um, the other question I had was also, um, when it says born of the wind or born of the spirit, and then he, he uses that as a, um, he talks about the wind goes wherever it wills and you don't know, you can't really trace it. Is it, can it also mean maybe like freedom or like something that you can't pin a person down with? I don't know. That's just my, that's the thing that came across my head, but I couldn't really like. You're touching on my, uh, my passionate spots. Because yes, I, I would join you in that meditation that a consequence of who God is, a consequence of who the spirit is, a consequence of what truth is, is freedom. That's why my buzz line has been truth and freedom because the two go together. Um, where a person of born of spirit can do whatever he wants and no one can tell him no because it'll always be true what he does. Right, and the one who's in truth is fearless. So they're free from social limitations, they're free from everything. And if you wanna carry it to an extreme, those who are free even in the most spiritual sense are not even restrained by their bodies anymore. And these are the sawah, the anchorites, the spirit born. Right, so I mean, in, in every sense of the, of the meanings of freedom, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it's a beautiful meditation. Uh, was it, 
this another meditation that I just uh, was thinking about too, because I've uh, not to sound like uh, super philosophical or anything, but there, Martin Heidegger had this really small idea of thrownness. And this has to do with the being born again. He has this idea of thrownness where you kind of get thrown into existence without a choice on your part. And you're plunged also towards a death that you have no choice over. But what Christ does with the baptismal font of the church is he actually allows you to choose to be born again. So now you can actually relate to birth and death because you're dying in the, in the womb of the church and being born again. You actually can change your relationship to birth and death to one of actual self-sacrifice and voluntariness instead of fatalistically. And so that's where the freedom of this whole passage kind of ties in is like, now I can actually freely choose to enter into death self-sacrificially mm. with Christ. And through that, actually also choose to be born. I'm not plunged into something against my will and just strained and chained to this kind of. Uh, that's beautiful. That's a, a beautiful take on it. Mm. Who is that again? Well, he didn't take that. Martin Heidegger, is, he, he focuses on just thrownness. Like the idea that we're kind of sent into this thing, this life against our will. Like he says, he has this really cool quote. He says, no one asked me if I wanted to be born. Obviously, you can't be asked if you don't exist. But uh, it's just, it, 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 you know, it's a mystery of existence. You're here against your will. But, yeah. That's cool. Very, very cool. Uh, sorry, let me scroll up. Um, Uh, does the living, if you look at the serpent, have some kind of parallel with God telling Moses he would not be able to live if he looked directly at God? Um, I don't think so in this analogy, um, because the not looking was was that no one can see the face of God at all and live. Um, it gets a little confusing because at the same time, Christ will say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, right? The only image or access we have to the Father is is the sun um that's one of the reasons why one of the traditions this is a tradition is that we usually are told not to depict the trinity um in icons um there are some traditions that do both eastern and oriental orthodox but um there's a tradition not to because of that verse um this one is a one-on-one -on -one, um I know you emailed me. I haven't opened it yet, so don't hate me. Um, I'll get to it. Um, God willing, very, very soon in my bed. I miss Ottawa too. Um, do you mind elaborating a bit more on what it means for the wrath of God to abide on someone? It's a bit of an iffy to me. Yeah, it's a tough concept. Me and Peter after talking about this once. Um, my analogy for the wrath of God, and it's just an analogy, um, is the the point where darkness tries to hit light right it's that light is what it is by its own nature it's not actively trying to be it it, it is that the moment darkness tries to touch light it's annihilated right if you open if you open i mean i've started saying open the lights if you turn on the lights immediately darkness is expelled right? It's automatic, 
right? It's not light pronounced anger, right? It's not light punished. Light does that. So when evil tries to penetrate into holiness, that's the wrath of God, right? Is that it cannot abide in God. It can't. Um, and so the consequence of evil takes hold on that person, and that's death. Right, because the end result of evil, the end result of sin, is its is its death, its mortality, which is the perfect question for this, because it's what the whole gospel is about. And he's saying, "But I don't want you to die." Right? If you choose me, love me, right? Then you won't be annihilated. You'll receive my life. Right? But I don't know how to be other than than what I am. Right, it's 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 who he is. I don't know if that clarifies or not. If it doesn't, Peter's put some really cool quotes right here. <laughs> it's just the Saint Anthony one about the uh, blind man and the light. You mean the best saint in the whole world? Exactly. <laughs> just trying to give him a shout out. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Long time no see. Um, so this will be always the first and third um tuesdays uh god willing it will be in person once uh, dr bonnie lets us in again um or maybe earlier because i think there's some leeway for educational programs but there's some restrictions on it so um if um we're able uh to do it in person great we will um if not we'll keep doing this uh until we can't any longer um to the person who just wrote me that's what i was referring to earlier um I um, I know that you messaged me, but I hadn't opened it yet. Um, I will, God willing, answer. Um, thank you, guys. Also, feel free to like let me know if this style sucks um, or anything like that. Um, I don't have any problem uh, switching it up, or if anything's too complicated, ever just let me know. All right, let us end in prayer, and then we will bezounce. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us worthy pray through the session of St. Mary and St. Anthony, our Father, who art in heaven, and hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those trespasses against us. Lead us not in temptation, but we will one Christ Jesus, our Lord, for God is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Love of God the Father, grace of the God and Son, communion, and give to the Holy Spirit with you all. Go in peace.